Mark the date. On August 21st, many of us across the United States will be thrust into partial or total darkness. At that moment, some people will believe that the world is coming to an end. But don't worry, it's not the end of the world. It's just an eclipse. But this is no ordinary eclipse, mind you. This is a total eclipse. It's one of those wow events that hardly ever happens in a person's lifetime. And it's coming to a location near you. Now, normally, a total eclipse is a rare occurrence. It's this breathtaking spectacle in space. You don't want to miss it, trust me. And if you want the best seat in the house, the safest way to view, and the best way to take photos, you definitely want to keep listening. You see, we've spent hours interviewing some of the world's most respected physicists, astronomers, research scientists, and just great photographers. Hi there, I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. And in this Commando On Demand podcast, we're going to meet some of the top scientists, experts in the area of astronomy and physics, including an actual eclipse chaser. Yeah, they're out there. I packed everything that you need to know about the eclipse into this podcast, including viewing, traveling, maybe watching the live stream, maybe you want to take pictures of it, how to do it safely, and a whole bunch more. What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. HelloFresh helps you prepare healthy, delicious meals at home in under 30 minutes by delivering easy-to-follow recipes direct to your doorstep. Start today and get $20 off plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash Kim. All right, let's start at the beginning. A total eclipse is a blackout of such intensity. It's considered by many cultures to be a bad sign. As the precious sun that we depend on for life is temporarily upstaged by this jealous moon, we're left in the dark just for a few moments to ponder our own existence in the unsettling black. In fact, the word eclipse comes from eclipsis. That's Greek for being abandoned. Total eclipse of the heart. All right, I love this song, but come on, lighten up. Eclipses aren't the enemy. People often mistake a total eclipse for this bad almond. But in the scientific world, eclipses are helpful. That's right, they are. They contribute to many groundbreaking discoveries, such as discovering new, possibly habitable planets, calculating the distance from the moon to Earth, and the ability to photograph the sun's corona. But let's start at the basics. What is it, how to see it, how to capture it, and how to survive it? I'm going to break it down for you, don't worry. And get this, you don't need to be a science geek to really get all this stuff. It's actually really, really interesting. And you'll see that each of our guests has a unique area of expertise when it comes to eclipses into space. So we're going to hear from them back to back on each question. So let's start at the very, very beginning. What exactly is an eclipse? An eclipse is where the moon passes between the Earth and the sun. And so in a small area on the Earth, it blocks all of the light from the sun during a total solar eclipse. On the ground, you see it get dark. You can see that there's light at the horizon if you can see all the way to the horizon. It's daytime, and yet it's as dark as it is late evening, you know, after sunset. It's a pretty amazing thing to experience. That was Dr. Eric Christian, a senior research scientist in the Heliospheric Laboratory 
at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and he's the lead scientist for the Energetic Particle Laboratory. Okay, the guy's super smart, and he's also the deputy principal investigator for the integrated scientific investigation of the sun on the Solar Probe Plus mission. Oh boy. And he's the mission scientist for the Interstellar Boundary Explorer and the deputy project scientist for the Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory and the Advancement Composition Explorer. Okay, that's about a 25-second ooh-ah right there. But between 2002 and 2008, Dr. Christian worked at NASA headquarters as the program scientist for a number of missions, including the two Voyager spacecraft. And what a fascinating conversation we have. Equally fascinating was my interview with Andrew Brecknoy. He's an award-winning astronomer and one of the country's leading experts on the 2017 total eclipse. And let me tell you this, when he speaks publicly, it's usually to a packed house. He's been on the Today Show and on the CBS Morning News, and Andrew is a passionate speaker. And his definition of the eclipse, well, listen to it. It took a slightly different angle. What happens is that the sun is covered entirely by the moon. We call that a total eclipse when the moon manages to cover the sun. And that's only going to be visible over a very narrow path, about 60 to 70 miles across. And this total eclipse path will start on a beach in Oregon and make its way across the United States and wind up on a beach in South Carolina. And so if you're in that path of totality, you will see the spectacular total eclipse where the moon completely covers the sun and the day turns into night. But for the rest of us, there will be a partial eclipse. And that's going to be quite impressive too. All of North America is going to get to see a partial eclipse where a big bite is taken out of the sun. Everything is going to be lined up perfectly so that the moon is going to pass through the shadow of the Earth, and that will block the sunlight. So what you will see is this curved shadow moving across the full moon. And during the deepest part of the eclipse, the moon will actually look red. It's a beautiful thing. Now, the reason that happens is that the only sunlight reaching the moon is light that's being scattered through the atmosphere of the Earth. And the Earth's atmosphere scatters away blue light, but lets red light through in a much more direct manner. It's actually the reason a sunrise or a sunset looks red to us. That red light is bouncing off the moon. And that's Dr. Michelle Fowler. She's an astronomer and the deputy director of science for communications at NASA headquarters. She was a staff scientist at the Infrared Processing and Analysis Center later manager of the education and public outreach program for the Spitzer Space Telescope. And as you can see, she has some pretty big credentials too. Now you may be thinking, why is everyone making such a big deal about this eclipse? Well, our experts are happy to help you get on board. It's special because there's only average of one total solar eclipse a year somewhere on the planet. But if you were stand in one place, you'd only get and see an eclipse every three or 400 years. This eclipse is gonna go from Oregon to South Carolina. And so it means that everyone in the continental US will see a good partial eclipse if they have the right viewing, eclipse classes or an indirect method. And everyone who wants to can drive to totality. There's narrow 60 mile wide band that'll cross the country and where you'll see a total solar eclipse. 
It's the first eclipse to cross the United States in about 99 years. It's very exciting to have an eclipse that's right on our own territory. Usually people have to go to distant places or rent a plane or a boat over oceans to get to see an eclipse of the sun. But here it's coming to us. In 1918, an eclipse crossed our country, coast to coast. Just think about the difference in technology between then and now. Tremendous. But even with limited technology, the eclipse over South Africa in 1919 actually helped prove Einstein's theory of relativity, which back then, it was just hot off the press. I had the chance to interview another research scientist of extraordinary magnitude an intelligent and gracious Italian astrophysicist. His name is Nico Capaluti. He's a YCAA Prize Postdoctoral Fellow at Yale University Center for Astronomy and Astrophysics. And for some reason, I totally feel underdressed. Well, he and his colleagues have recently been breaking new ground in their study of these supermassive black holes and dark matter and other mysteries of deep space and time. I asked him if there were any more eclipses in our future. And, well, he had some exciting news. Since 2,500 years, since basically when astronomy developed, humankind was able to predict the number of eclipses. And we know that every 18 years, 29 lunar eclipses and 41 solar eclipses happen. And this cycle is called Saros cycle. The probability of having three solar eclipses observable in the same area in such a short time is very, very low. And especially the state of Oregon will have two total eclipses in the same area within seven years. This is exceptional. Just to give you an example, where I was born, there was a total eclipse in the 60s, and there won't be any in my lifespan. So this is exceptional. We are very lucky and that will give the opportunity of people living in our epoch to see three eclipses in a lifetime. It's impressive. So there are two more coming. In the next seven years in the United States, we will have three solar eclipses observable from north to south. Okay, what about a total eclipse? The next one in the U.S. happens in 2024. And it turns out that Carbondale, Illinois, which is one of the places NASA is going to set out, is on both paths. So, Eric, how can we pinpoint where the next eclipses will actually happen? You can see maps of where all the future eclipses are, and there are people who travel all over the world to see these things. I've seen two in very remote places. This one's going to be fun because it's home at some level, and so really neat. Are you going? Yeah, I'm going to be in Casper, Wyoming, yep. That's crazy. I made plans to be in Casper, Wyoming, too. All right. What about you, Nico? Uh, So I won't be able to travel because I'm having a baby. Ah, an eclipse baby. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, you heard Dr. Christian mention the word totality. And, of course, everybody wants to get the best view of the total eclipse in its entirety. Andrew, you said that you know a way to help our listeners figure out where to get the very best view. Can you please explain that? 
So this eclipse will be different in each different city. In New York City, for example, 71% of the sun will be covered. Uh, where I am in San Francisco, about 76% of the sun will be covered by the moon. And in Washington, D.C., there'll be an 81% cover-up of the sun by the moon. So astronomer Jeff Bennett has put together a very nice app that you can get in the App Store uh, called Totality. And if you just download it, it's a completely free app, and if you download that onto your phone or tablet, you can then put in where you are, and it will show you exactly what's going to happen in your location, how much of an eclipse you're going to get, what the eclipse will look like, and where it will be in the sky. And what about online? Online, there is a huge amount of information. NASA will cover it on nasa.gov, so it will be observable basically by everyone. So many people are going to want to take photos of the eclipse, but there's the right way and the wrong way to do it. Coming up, how to take the best photos of the eclipse and still keep your eyes in check. Brought to you in part by our friends at Dreamstime, the world's largest stock photo and video community. The right image anywhere, anytime. Download the most relevant and current images and videos today for only 20 cents each or for free. Visit dreamstime.com. That's D-R-E-A-M-S-T-I-M-E dot com today. So if you want to see the total eclipse at totality, Andrew, I know you're on the Eclipse Task Force that has been planning for this event for over a year. But what are some of the things that you want to warn travelers and eclipse chasers about? Are there any problems that we should be aware of? Where the total eclipse is visible, turns out really not to hit any of the major metropolitan areas of the United States. It does clip a little corner of St. Louis, and it does go over the town of Nashville, but everywhere else, it's a small town and rural eclipse. And on the other hand, 47 million people live within a 100-mile drive of that zone. And what worries astronomers and public safety experts is that as the media begin to really wake up to this eclipse and as people learn more about it, many of those 47 million people will say, well, what the heck? It's only 100 miles to drive there. Let's get in the car, take the kids, and drive up there the morning of the eclipse. And if millions of people make that decision at the last minute, it's going to be utter gridlock on the roads and not just the roads will be crowded, but the fields and, the, and all the uh, sort of small towns will get overwhelmed with visitors. And so things like, uh, where will they go to the bathroom? Where will they get water? Where will there be enough food? So we're really encouraging people who are interested in the eclipse to plan ahead, not to leave this to the last minute. Uh, most experts are saying you should be in or very close to the zone of the total eclipse if you want to see the full spectacle the day before the eclipse. So the eclipse is happening on a Monday, Monday, August 21. And so on that Sunday or even on the Saturday is the time to get into the zone to make sure that you know where resources are, to make sure you know where you're going to be that morning and not leave it to chance and to this uh, possibility of having enormous crowds trying to move into the zone hours before the eclipse on August 21. 
I'm pretty anxious to hear about the tech aspect, of course. The last time we had a total eclipse in this country, we didn't have any computers. There was no satellite tracking. And because things have all changed, Dr. Christian, I know that so many of our listeners are just dying to hear about NASA's imaging and photo techniques. So tell us more. Okay, so we're going to have a bunch of customized telescopes, usually about four. We do NASA TV and the Exploratorium Science Museum that I work with. Uh, we'll be doing a live webcast and a recording of it. So we'll have four specialized telescopes that include full field in what's called white light and H-alpha, which is a certain wavelength that hydrogen gives off on the sun, and then close-ups of both of those versions. But me, I like just watching it. I take some pictures. I have a SLR camera that I use, just a Canon EOS, and I have a 500 millimeter lens, which lets the sun take up a, a good part of the viewing area. I have a good solar filter, which is really, really black, so that I can take pictures of the partial. But during the total solar eclipse, you'll never get as good as the professional photographers who do some special processing and, and have their camera set up to take multiple images that they then combine. And so we advise that people just look at the corona. I mean, it's a, this gorgeous thing, and your eye is actually better than any camera an ordinary person would have. And so I spent most of my time during the last two solar eclipses just looking at it. I took some pictures of people's reaction around me, and that's always fun. But it's the only time with your own eye you can see the, the solar corona, which is this stream of particles that blows off the sun in all directions. And it's beautiful. It, it's different every single time because the solar wind changes and the, the magnetic field of the sun changes. And it's just really spectacular to just watch it. That's the thing about NASA. They plan the coordinates down to a T. Yep, yep. Okay, here's an important point. All the experts I spoke with had one major piece of advice. If this is your very first eclipse, do not try to take pictures. Taking pictures with your cell phone is especially dangerous because, well, it could fry the photo cells. So instead, sit back, enjoy it, put the screen down, experience the eclipse. It's more beautiful than you realize. And this beauty is going to create a more meaningful memory than the memory of fumbling around with your camera gear or your smartphone. The eclipse is so spectacular, with the moon completely covering the sun and the faint halo of an atmosphere coming out from around the sun. And you see the day turn into darkness so that the stars actually come out. It's just an awesome spectacle. And so for people who are new to eclipses, we recommend don't try to take a picture, especially because this eclipse is a relatively short one. Even in the longest place, it only lasts about two and a half minutes. So during that brief time, uh, it's really best just to take in the scene, to look around you, to see how nature's reacting to this remarkable change in the light, and to let it all wash over you. Let's go back to the new technology. I'm such a tech nerd and junkie, and I have been my entire life. And I wanna share with you some of the latest technology that will be making its debut during this total eclipse. 
So one of the really neat things that NASA and other people are doing for this eclipse is we've set up identical telescopes all along the path. Normally you can only see for one to seven minutes. This one's going to be about two and a half minutes long at, at its longest and stuff. But the corona that you're seeing changes, but it changes slowly. By using identical telescopes all across the country, we're going to be able to hopefully get together a movie of the solar corona for the hour and a half that it takes to go from Oregon to South Carolina. Because it's identical uh, telescopes and setups, we're going to be able to combine them pretty easily and get an amazing movie of the eclipse that'll be longer than any one person can see. And there's another eclipse movie brewing, something similar but very unique. Google and the University of California at Berkeley have gotten together to do a remarkable citizen science project called the Eclipse Mega Movie. And what they hope to do is to get people all along that path where the eclipse is total to take pictures of the total eclipse. When the sun's atmosphere comes out, you can see a beautiful halo around the sun, and it's very, very photogenic. So they're going to ask people to take a picture and then wirelessly send it to Google. And Google will stitch all the pictures from across the country together into one giant movie showing the eclipse moving from the West Coast to the East Coast. And that's called the Eclipse Mega Movie Project. And they're still looking for photographers who'd like to be part of this great project. I hope you didn't miss that. I know for a fact that we have some technology-savvy photographers who listen to this podcast. So I encourage you, if you think you can make the grade, get in on this thing. What a blast. So this might be a mixed message. On one hand, the experts say, don't take photos. But if you're a professional and you have the right gear, it could work out. For people like me, I know you've got your camera out, lenses cleaned, infrared, or some other experimental film locked and loaded. So here to help us understand is astronomer, eclipse chaser, and astrophotographer, Rob Howley. He's the creator of the Photographing Solar Eclipses video series. It's on YouTube and it's super popular. And it's not as easy as you think. The first problem you'll have to face is the range of brightnesses. If you want to capture a range of phenomena, you'll have to do this by either varying the ISO or varying your shutter speed. Next, which seems obvious, is the sun moves. You're going to be there for at least four hours. And even during totality itself, the sun is going to move out of your field of view. Finally, you're going to be pumped up with adrenaline. If you want a realistic practice of what an eclipse is like, run around the block first and then work with your equipment. Run around the block? I don't know if I want to run around during an eclipse, but I'll take your word for it. Let's talk tech now for a moment. Let's assume we know only a little tiny bit about photography, but we still want to get that decent shot. What's the first thing we should do? The first is to restrict your imaging to wide angle. Wide angle you can start before totality, and then you spend your time during totality looking. The next is to use an automated shutter along with a tracking mount. Finally, you can get really sophisticated and use a computer. Okay, I know this isn't your first time at the rodeo. How many times have you shot wide? I've shot wide angle four times. Some of the best eclipse shots I've ever seen are composites of more than one picture. So how can we do that? If you combine wide angle and high dynamic range, that means shooting multiple exposures and then combining them with the appropriate software. You can get a dramatic picture, but your priority needs to be looking at the eclipse and not photographing. Thanks, Rob. And there's that advice again, folks. Don't shoot the moon. 
Okay, one of the reasons I asked Andrew Franknoy to join us is because he led the effort to help provide 2 million Eclipse safety viewing glasses to the public. There are 4,000 public libraries, and they're going to be giving away these glasses for free, along with an eye safety booklet that he helped distribute. So the big issue about an eclipse is that the sun is dangerous to look at. Normally, if we look briefly at the sun, our common sense tells us to look away. But sometimes during eclipses, enthusiasm about the sky can overwhelm your common sense. And so people may tend to look at the sun longer than we'd like them to. just have to note here that according to NASA, looking at an eclipse does not cause blindness, but it can cause significant retinal damage. The important thing about viewing the partial eclipse when the sun is still showing is to remember that it's dangerous and to use some kind of technique to shield your eyes. So there are several things that you can do. You can get special glasses and there is indeed a nice project that we were involved with thanks to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Google. Two million safe eclipse viewing glasses have been distributed to public libraries nationwide. And so you might be able to go to your public library and get eclipse viewing glasses which make it safe to look at the sun. But if that's not true, if you're not able to get glasses and you want to look at the partial eclipse, here are some things you can do. You can, for example, take a hand mirror or a woman's compact mirror, cover all of it with a piece of cardboard except for a hole about the size of a dime. And if you take that covered mirror and you catch an image of the sun in that mirror, you can project that image onto a wall and get a nice reflected view of the eclipse, which is perfectly safe to look at. This may sound like an old wives' tale, but I have heard that a common kitchen colander works just as well. So, is this true? If you hold the colander over your head with your back to the sun, the shadow of the colander on a pavement will show through those pinholes lots of little pictures of the partially eclipsed sun. This is great, Andrew. Our Eclipse 2017 Survival Kit is almost complete, thanks to you and my other expert guests. Now, you also have a free PDF available online, sort of a Q&A for the general public about solar eclipses. Tell us a little bit about it. So we've put together for the National Science Teachers Association a completely non-technical eight-page booklet all about the eclipse and how to view it. And that's free on the web, uh, nsta.org forward slash solar science. Right from that page, there's a link to this free eight-page booklet, which anyone can download from the web. So all the information about where to view it and how to view it can be found in that booklet. Now, for kids, this is really cool. You've written a book about eclipses. So the National Science Teachers Association has published a book that uh, my colleague Dennis Schatz and I have written called When the Sun Goes Dark. It's a book for kids ages 8 through 13, and it tells the story of young children whose grandparents are eclipse chasers, 
who go all over the world looking for eclipses. And so the story includes some fun family activities that can be done to get kids more knowledgeable about the causes of eclipses and the safe viewing techniques. Uh, we're very gratified that teachers and librarians have told us that they have really enjoyed the book, and it's certainly something we will have available either through the National Science Teachers Association web store or even through Amazon. And of course, a lot of this great information is on my website over at commando.com. I just love everyone's enthusiasm for eclipses, especially technology, and the delight that they all take in sharing this passion with the world. It's just infectious. Technology and science together are discovering possible alternate realities and hidden matter, the mysteries of time and light, and possibly planets where there are other people. All from the contributions, would you believe, of eclipses. Uh, coming up, we delve deep into the mysteries of eclipse science, technology, and astrophysics. We're going to reach into outer space for answers that eclipses themselves have helped generate. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. An eclipse is a phase of the orbit parameter of a system of planets in this case. And what we are going to have in the so-called Great American Eclipse, it's a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse happens when the moon, the earth and the sun are exactly along the same line of sight. And basically what we are seeing is the shadow of the moon on the earth. His definition of a solar eclipse takes a slightly more scientific tone than mine. So, Nico, is the August 21st eclipse kind of a basic event for you, or are you pretty excited about it? We are very excited because astronomy and astrophysics are fields that trigger lots of curiosity in the people. And these massive events that is crossing the whole country from west to east in the middle of August day will make lots of people interested in our field. Think about the cell phone or the digital cameras that we are using every day. These are technologies that have been developed by physics and astrophysics for doing basic research. So we are very excited of having this, especially in this period of the year. So people can go out, the probability of having a sunny day is very high, and uh, we will have lots of time to answer the question and the curiosity of the people, and that's what the duty of scientists is. Scientists not only have to do the research, but it's our duty to report our results and make the people conscious of what we are doing in the lab and sharing how our knowledge and discoveries. But in this podcast, I want us to really get a scientific viewpoint. And Andrew Fracknoy is more than happy to explain. There's an interesting tilt in the solar system. It's not a very big tilt, a little more than five degrees. But the way the moon goes around us and the plane which we circle the sun with, that is the way we see the sun in the sky and the way we see the moon in the sky, is tilted by about five, six degrees degrees. Those two orbits are like two hula hoops, which are in sort of the identical place, but tilted relative to each other. And most of the time, when the sun and the moon might have an eclipse, 
they're actually above and below each other and the eclipse can't happen because of the tilt of the orbits. But every once in a while, where the two orbits are in a crossing mode, then eclipses are possible. So roughly, since the, the, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun is about 12 months, roughly every six months we have eclipse season, when eclipses of the Sun and eclipses of the Moon are possible. We don't always get a total eclipse of the Sun during each eclipse season, but it's every six months. And so somewhere on Earth, there is an eclipse every six months, but it's, of course, only total eclipse if it's a solar eclipse over a tiny area like that spot that I've been discussing for August. So eclipse aficionados uh, travel thousands of miles to be in the right spot, so to speak, for every eclipse. But for most of us who can't afford that, when an eclipse comes to us, it's a big deal. Andrew is the chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. He's active in the American Astronomical Society Eclipse Task Force and the Astronomical Society of the Pacific and National Science Teachers Association. He's involved in so many science and observatory groups. This guy even has an asteroid named after him. How cool is that? As we go deeper into space, I think about NASA's spacecraft. They rely on solar technology to operate. Dr. Michelle Thaler knows all about those things. She's an astronomer and the deputy director of science for communications at NASA headquarters. So, Michelle, will an eclipse affect NASA spacecrafts? Well, yes, actually it does. Our spacecraft around the moon use solar batteries. They need solar panels and sunlight. So the eclipse will block the sunlight, meaning the batteries will run down. And of course, we at NASA are aware of this. We prepared for this. We're going to be monitoring the health of LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is currently orbiting the moon, taking wonderful pictures. And exactly how the batteries respond to this darkness will even help us design better batteries in the future. See, that's what I'm talking about. Michelle knows her stuff. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to leave the Earth's orbit and go even deeper into space. Nico, as we're traveling, do you want to explain what exactly you do? I'm involved in research of studying black holes in the first billion years of life of the universe. To do that, we need to employ infrared and X-ray telescope. To do that, we have to use telescopes in space. And the reason is that our atmosphere is not transparent to infrared light and X-ray light because X-rays from space are deadly for the human DNA. So NASA in 1999 launched a great mission that's called Chandra that is an X-ray telescope that is basically as tall as a four-story building and if we don't cool enough our instruments, the noise will dominate our observation. So we have to go in space when the temperature is very low to keep this instrument very cold. I would like to encourage everybody to go online and look for the video of the deployment of Chandra from the space shuttle. It's outstanding. It's a really a great mission. It's something that only the skills of NASA scientists or, or scientists throughout the, all the universities working on space science in the United States are doing. 
The crew has been given a go to open the payload bay doors, which they are in the process of doing at this point. The space program of the United States is something that has to be kept up and everybody has to be proud of this. Nico, I just had to brag on you for just a little bit because your accomplishments at the Center for Astronomy and Astrophysics are so amazing. You and your team have recently designed a major observational project involving NASA's three great observatories. You also just discovered a large population of hidden X-ray sources showing, get this, that there are three times as many obscured supermassive black holes as unobscured ones. Astronomers now know about host galaxies because of your great work. So how do eclipses help you explore the skies for these hidden black holes and planets? Eclipses have been very important in the studies of gravity. In particular, gravity is what uh, revealed us both dark matter and black holes, and eclipses have been one of the fundamental proofs of Einstein's general relativity theory. According to the theory of general relativity, every celestial body with a mass can change the space-time around it, including the sun. So what do we expect to see when we observe a solar eclipse? Since uh, the sky gets dark, stars appear in the sky during an eclipse. And because the space-time around the sun has been cured by the mass of the sun itself, the position of the stars in the sky is it's slightly shifted from the position where we expect to see if they were not right behind the sun. And this has been explained by the distortion of space-time from the sun mass. And this is exactly what Einstein predicted. So eclipses have been very important. But I want to add another thing about eclipses. Modern astrophysics now is able to observe eclipses of extrasolar planets in front of other stars. So basically, eclipses are now the way to discover planets orbiting around other stars. And more than 200 new planets have been observed with this technique around other suns, not belonging to our galaxies, but far away from us. And among these stars or planets, 10 of them might have conditions of habitability similar to the Earth. So eclipses now are powerful method for finding possible places for extraterrestrial life. Two little men in a flying saucer flew down to Earth one day. Looked to left and right of it, couldn't stand the sight of it and said, let's fly away. So there you have it, extraterrestrial life. Not exactly what you expect to hear on a tech podcast, I get that. But actually, these two subjects are more related than you might think. And who better to talk to about E.T. than Andrew Franknoy? Andrew just happens to have served on the board of trustees for SETI. You remember SETI. That's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. If you want to learn more about SETI, I actually did a podcast about how scientists are using radio waves to discover life on another planet. That podcast is called A Twist in the Search for E.T., and it's from February of this year. It's really fascinating stuff. But let's talk to Andrew, because Nico sparked some curiosities in me, and I bet in you too. I mean, do eclipses illustrate to you any possibility at all? 
Think about this. For these alternate universes, or maybe even extraterrestrial life. Well, there are a couple of things that I think are pretty interesting. For example, we now know that eclipse is possible because there's this remarkable coincidence. As seen from Earth, the size of the moon in our sky and the size of the sun in our sky are exactly the same. And astronomers have actually looked at this situation from all the other planets in the solar system. And it's not true anywhere else. For example, on Mars, the moons are much too small to cover the sun. So you never get a total eclipse on Mars. But on the Earth, it's possible. So this sometimes makes people feel that we're pretty special compared to whoever might look at eclipses on other planets because we've got this remarkable coincidence in our skies. One of the other things connected to uh, extraterrestrial life and the possibility of finding perhaps our cousins among the stars is that we are using a technique very similar to eclipses to find planets orbiting other stars. This has been one of the great discoveries of recent astronomy, is that we've been discovering planets orbiting other stars. And that's quite difficult to do because stars are incredibly bright and planets are really small and dim. So how can we find in the glare of a brilliant star like the sun, a tiny planet going around it far away in space? And one way is to look for an eclipse when the planet gets in front of the star, it won't completely eclipse the star, but the body of the planet will get in front of the star and make it less bright, make it a tiny bit dimmer. And we've had a spacecraft up in space called Kepler, which has been measuring this for 150,000 stars in the sky, taking pictures and seeing if any of those stars get a little bit dimmer on a regular basis as planets orbit them. And we've been remarkably successful. We've actually found thousands of planets orbiting other stars using this eclipse-like technique, which is called the transit method of finding planets. And not only have we found so many planets, but we found a number of planets that resemble the Earth, that have a solid surface like the Earth, that have the kind of temperature conditions where water could be liquid. So these are prime candidates as we search for the possibility of life elsewhere, we think that it's going to need planets like the Earth, and such studies are revealing that planets like the Earth are actually out there around other stars. This is fascinating. So what you and Nico are saying, in a nutshell, is that not only does time act differently in space during an eclipse, but eclipses have actually revealed certain planets that have similar orbital patterns or maybe other elements that are similar to planet Earth? Yes, exactly. And in the far future, with this technique, we might select a series of candid planets and we will follow up them with modern telescopes like, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope that will be launched next year that is will be basically the replacement of the Hubble Space Telescope. And this telescope will be powerful enough to reveal molecules in the atmosphere of these planets. And hopefully within 
10 to 20 years, we will be able to see around this planet where molecules like water itself can be present. And so eclipses are the base for very important discoveries. Okay, now you're going to feel really smart because probably the most significant eclipse-based discovery was proving, are you ready for it, Einstein's general theory of relativity. Now, this literally opened the floodgates of science, technology, and astrophysics. But wait a minute. We just received a transmission from the rocket man himself, TMRO's chief astronomer, Jared Head. He's joining us now to explain Einstein's general theory of relativity. Space-time is curved by matter, and that curve is experienced as gravitational force. That simple sentence sums up one of Einstein's greatest contributions to physics as we understand it. Satellites' trajectories, paths of light, and the passage of time that you and I experience is all relative to this curvature of space-time. It's what allows things like gravitational lensing, black holes, and other curiosities of physics to occur. So I wanted to know, who got the bright idea to use an eclipse to prove Einstein's theory? I mean, we all know that Einstein got the ball rolling, but who actually got the proof? English astronomer Arthur Eddington led an expedition in 1919 to observe a solar eclipse and compare the positions of stars near the sun with their predicted locations on an accurate star chart. If general relativity was at work, then those stars should appear slightly off. And what do you know, the imagery proved that the light from the stars was bent ever so slightly. Einstein's theory continues to make waves in the science world long after he proposed his theory. And speaking of making waves, Einstein's theory led to the discovery of an intriguing kind of wave. We have basically studied the universe only by using uh, the electromagnetic spectrum of light. So basically by watching the universe and seeing the light coming from the universe. But last year, there's, there's been a breakthrough in, uh, in astrophysics and we discovered gravitational waves. Gravitational waves still are, is a product of the theory of general relativity and it has opened a window into the study of both dark matter and black holes. We basically are able to see black hole merging. So basically from, from two black holes, we ended up having one bigger black hole after a collision. And this experiment called LIGO is one of the most challenging technological endeavors that astrophysics uh, embraced in probably the last 50 years. See, I told you that you were going to learn a bunch of great stuff in this podcast. But dare we go any deeper than this? Did you even ask? Come on, you know me, I'm Kim Commando. If something needs exploring, I'm totally there. Grab my hand. Let's go even deeper into space. This is outer space. The void that exists between celestial bodies, including Earth. It's not completely empty, but it consists of a hard vacuum containing a low density of a whole bunch of things. I'm talking about particles, plasma, hydrogen, helium, electromagnetic radiation, magnetic fields, neutrinos, dust, and cosmic rays. In most galaxies, 
there is evidence that 90% of the mass is in an unknown form called, are you ready? Dark matter, which interacts with other matter through gravitational forces. So, Nico, what exactly is dark matter? Dark matter is the most abundant form of matter in the universe. But as the name says, dark matter is not directly detectable uh, because it doesn't emit light. So the way we have discovered dark matter is through its interaction via gravity with bodies or celestial bodies that emit light. So the celestial objects that emit light turned out to be much less than the total amount of mass that we see. And we know that dark matter is about 80% of the total mass of the universe. But the nature of the matter is still uh, uncertain. So what we are looking for is new unknown particles that are not emitting light or emitting a special kind of light. In my cases, what I focused is looking for a new particle that is called sterile neutrino that has the peculiarity that is much, much heavier than regular neutrinos like the one produced in the sun. And these particles can decay into a regular neutrino and an X-ray. And we observe the cosmic X-ray background with a NASA telescope called Chandra that is sensitive to the X-rays. And we were looking for special signature in the spectrum of the cosmic backgrounds. And we hope to be able to say something within the next 10 years about the nature of dark matter. There are other candidates, particles for, uh, for dark matter. Um, some particles are called WIMPs, that stands for Weakly Interactive Mass Particle, which means that there are particles that interact only with gravity or through the weak uh, force. And re most recently there have been claims in the literature from theorists that even black holes formed during the Big Bang uh, might be the dark matter. So this is one of the most exciting fields of modern astrophysics that we are exploring now. And now this field actually is at the edge between astrophysics and particle physics. And I think that the two fields are actually in the future will merge. There won't be a big difference between physics itself and astrophysics. So, in simpler terms, this means it's possible that alternate realities really do exist because you can measure them, even though you can't see them yet. Uh, depends what you mean about reality. <laughs> and talking with all of you has been so inspiring. So that makes me curious as to how you got involved in astronomy in the first place. When I was very young, I loved science fiction. And I would love reading either books or comic books about people in space and other worlds. And then I remember suddenly becoming aware in a library that this isn't just fiction. People actually study this for a living, that you can learn about the planets, the stars, and the galaxies in real life. And that just drew me immediately then to take more science classes and to get interested in astronomy. And I've been, I guess, involved since age 13. Eric, what about you? Are you living the dream working for NASA? So I was eight years old when the lunar landing started. Basically, at eight years old, decided I wanted to work for NASA and never changed my mind. Even at the time, I knew I was good at science and math. 
And so I'm very unusual in that I decided early what I wanted to do. I'm now working for NASA, a job that's fun. <laughs> you know, it's exactly what I wanted to be doing with my life. Very lucky that way. And we are lucky to have you on this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Kim. Nico, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you very much. Astronomy, astrophysics, scientists, and mathematicians making these trailblazing discoveries hand-in-hand with new technologies. Now, what amuses me are the superstitions people used to believe about the skies, eclipses in particular. You see, the Vietnamese used to believe that a huge frog was consuming the sun. And then the Nordic folks, they thought that wolves were actually eating the sun. And in ancient China, a dragon feasted on the sun, giving the Chinese their word for eclipse, which means to eat. See? Makes sense. Meanwhile, in Hindu mythology, a god's head flies off into the sky and swallows the sun, causing an eclipse. Now, although technology has enlightened most of us to what's really happening in space, there are those who still believe, I know it's crazy, that the Earth is flat. Eclipses still scare some people even today. And if you hear your neighbors banging on pots and pans during a solar eclipse, you want to know why? It's because they're trying to scare away the demon that is causing the darkness. Don't laugh. A lot of folks believe in this. While this does make for a good joke, it's not very productive or healthy. When you believe in things that you don't understand, then you might suffer. And this is why I've dedicated my entire life to helping others, people from all walks of life, understand technology. Because tech can be fun, but not knowing tech can be dangerous. Because for every terrific new gadget out there, there's a potential trap for the uninformed. So that's where I come in. I investigate, I inform, so that this way you can enjoy technology and then use it to your benefit, rather than being a victim to, say, scammers who want to ruin it all for you. So I'm really glad that you made it here to the end because we traveled off the beaten path. You've learned about some of the latest discoveries happening in astronomy and astrophysics. And we got to sink our teeth into some real solar eclipse science. I think that's kind of fun. We had a great time putting this podcast together. It's vital, informative, it's necessary. And as we try to comprehend this historic interstellar event, this is going to be the first solar eclipse to traverse the United States while reaching totality on U.S. soil exclusively. This is a really big deal. So I hope you're going to have your eyes on the skies on August 21st, 2017. I certainly will. We'll be in Casper, Wyoming. And if you like this podcast, do me a favor and head over to iTunes or Google Play and give it a five-star rating and a terrific review because this helps more people find our podcast. And as you know, when it comes to knowledge, it's all about sharing. And I'd like to say a special thank you to the folks who helped me put together this podcast. It was a lot of work. Uh, first up, Vicki Morgan. She did a fantastic job putting together all the interviews and the scripts. Thank you, Vicki. And also to the mighty Mike James, of course. I'm Kim Commando. I actually host the nation's largest radio show about digital lifestyle and technology. I have some 6 million people tuning into my broadcast every week. And you can watch my show, you can listen to my show, and you can find my show on a station near you by heading over to the official homepage of the Kim Commando Show. That's commando.com, K-O-M-A-N-D-O.com. And hey, by the way, if you haven't already, make sure that you get the free commando.com app. It's available for free on iTunes. And for all your Android devices, you can find it on Google Play or your favorite podcast player. Because not only can you get this podcast delivered automatically, 
but also our other wildly, insanely popular podcast called Tech News This Week. Chem Commando is brought to you in part by iDrive. Back up all your devices on just one account. Use promo code Kim for 75% off your first year. iDrive.com. Promo code Kim. <laughs>